therefore, that's the word we began with last week at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul tells the church in Ephesus, therefore, because of what I've told you about the gospel, do not be overwhelmed, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you. This week, we also get a therefore at the beginning of chapter 4. Last week's therefore was mainly about what had proceeded in Ephesians chapter 3. This week's therefore is a little bit different because Ephesians is divided basically into two halves, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. And this week's therefore at the beginning of chapter 4 is about what what came before in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters as a whole. And the first three chapters as a whole in the book of Ephesians are all about Paul's experience and his discourse on what is the gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? In the first chapter, he talks about our election in Jesus Christ, that we are predestined, those who believe are predestined to be Jesus people to be believers in Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean like the Calvinists teach that we are then predestined, that those who don't believe are predestined to hell. That would be double predestination. We just believe in single predestination. But it is clear that our salvation is only a work of God. Our salvation is only by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we are elected to Christ. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the Lutheran's favorite chapter, because you get all of that talk about what is the gospel and how we are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we are saved. It's probably your favorite Bible verse, at least some of yours. We are saved by grace through faith, not of our own doing, but as a work of God. So that no one may boast that we would follow in the good works prepared for us beforehand. So we have election, we have by grace through faith. And then in chapter 3, like we talked about last week, we have the breadth and length and height and depth of the unsearchable riches of Christ, the unsearchable love of Christ that we are rooted and grounded in. The amazing nature of the gospel. And so, when Paul begins chapter 4 now, with this word again, therefore, therefore, he's calling to mind all of that. He's calling to mind that you have been called by this gospel. That you have been saved not because of anything that you've done, but because of the work of Christ alone. He's calling to mind the most amazing, unsearchable, rich nature of the gospel itself. And he says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the manner of the calling to which you have been called. Your main calling is to be a gospel Christian. You have been called by this most amazing gospel. Now you are called to walk like a gospel Christian. And that's what the rest of the book of Ephesians is really going to be about, chapters 4, 5, and 6. It's going to be about walking in the faith. Chapters 5 and 6 are going to be about things like how to walk in an ordered way 
in this life. How to live in a family like a Christian. How to be a husband and wife like a Christian. How to be a child or a parent like a Christian. How to be a church member. And then you're also going to get things later on in chapter 4 like different vices and how to increase in virtue. It's all about walking in that gospel to which we've been called. But before he gets to all of that, the thing that we want to look at today is that walking in the manner worthy of the gospel, the calling to which you've been called, begins with Christian unity. This is the very first thing that Paul talks about when he talks about walking in this way. He's going to spend three chapters on a lot of other stuff, but he starts with unity. And when he talks about unity in just these short six verses, he talks about two things primarily. First, the character of unity. What are you like when you have unity? What are the characteristics of someone who walks, starting with Christian unity? And then what is the source of our unity? What is the source of our being unified together as the Christian church? So first, the character of unity. Why does he start with unity? Why does he start with the character of unity? Well, remember last week in chapter 3, Paul urged them not to lose heart over what he was suffering for them. He was in prison for the sake of the gospel. And he begins that way again this week. Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, say to you, walk in a manner worthy to the calling to which you've been called. The Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus, is losing heart because their missionary, Paul, is in prison. He's in prison. And what happens when people, when the church, starts to lose heart over something? What happens in the church when there's a problem in the church and they don't know what to do about it? That's why Paul's writing to them, because there's some disagreement, there's some kind of problem with Paul being in prison. They don't have their full-time pastor anymore. They're not sure what they're going to do without Paul. They think that they might be put in prison. Who knows what's going through their head? But what happens when there starts to be worries like that in a church? You know the answer. Whenever there's worries in the church, people disagree. Whenever there's some kind of intense voters meeting or some kind of intense leadership meeting, it's because there's worries in the church and people disagree about what should be done. And so there is probably, obviously, if we read between the lines, disagreement going on in the church of Ephesus. And so Paul wants to deal with the immediate problem at hand in the church of Ephesus. He wants to deal with this problem right away. He wants us to walk as individual gospel Christians. That's true. He's going to get to that, but in order to get to that, we have to be in a place as a church where we can help each other do so. We have to be in a place, the church of Ephesus had to be in a place, where if they were going to take on this endeavor of walking like gospel Christians, where they could support one another and teach one another and build each other up. As the proverb says so clearly, iron sharpens iron. Christianity is not an individual sport. Yes, you have an individual faith, but Christ institutes the office of the holy ministry, pastors, and then therefore lay people. He institutes the church on earth, a visible church on earth made up of 
congregations which are planted by pastors so that people can come together and fellowship acts 2 what do they do right at the beginning of the new testament church once jesus has ascended into heaven they devoted themselves to hearing the apostles preaching to coming together for the breaking of the bread and the fellowship of the lord's supper to the fellowship itself of just being together and learning from one another and building each other up and to prayer obviously taking into account all those things in a group setting. Christianity is not an individual sport. You are meant to live out your Christian faith primarily in the week-in, week-out nature of joining together in the divine service here, gathered together in a building. Yes, you have an individual faith, but that individual faith is strengthened, is worked, is built up by being together with fellow believers. Now there is an error, I believe, that can occur whenever we start to think about Christian unity in this way in terms of visible local congregations. I have seen at times in the church, not just in this church, in other churches Two, I have seen at times in the church that sometimes people who come into the church can feel somewhat disjointed from the rest of the congregation. They can feel not so welcome in a congregation if the congregation has specific cultures about it. Or some people might call these cliques. And people can feel a little bit disjointed from the congregation because maybe they're a little bit different than the average kind of person that makes up the majority of the congregation. If they're kind of a different person, if they have different hobbies or a different personality, if they're just a different type of person than most of the people who make up the congregation, the culture of the congregation, then they can kind of feel disjointed. Maybe they have different hobbies or, like I said, a different personality. And I want to say that that's okay. It's okay to have different types of people in the congregation. Sometimes I think when people think about the Christian congregation or the local congregation, they know in their mind that we're supposed to be unified. And so they get in their heads, people get in their heads, whether they feel on the outside or whether they are on the inside. And they want to bring people in. No matter what side you're coming from, they think that everyone has to be somehow like best friends. That everyone has to have the same types of personalities. That we all have to have this kind of monoculture about us. That everyone needs to kind of be able to relate to each other on a very personal level. That there's kind of unspoken rules about conformity. And then people get upset when they see that there are naturally different cliques or groups within the congregation. And I want to caveat that. I want to be clear that when we talk about Christian unity, we're not talking about cultural conformity. I think it is actually okay to have, to some degree, different personalities, different types of people, people with different hobbies, different, if you will, cliques within a congregation. 
Different people are going to relate to other people differently. We're not all the same. In fact, Paul is going to go on to say one of the strengths of the church, right after he talks about unity, is that we do have within this unity, within this one body, a diversity of types of people. That different people have different gifts and different strengths and act differently than one another, and that is okay. In fact, it's a good thing because we can use those strengths to build each other up. So I want to be clear that when we talk about Christian unity, we're not saying that everyone has to, in the case of the LCMS church, love sauerkraut potlucks. That could be something that would be expected of people, maybe not at a southern LCMS church, maybe in a midwestern LCMS church, but if you grew up in an LCMS church, you know what I'm talking about. We can have different types of people. That's good. But what is the unity, what is the character of the unity that Paul is talking about here when he says that we should have unity with one another? And he starts by giving a description of the character of what it looks like to be a unified Christian. The first thing he says is that we should have humility. Humility. And the word humility here, it's a great word. It's a word that has to do with how you reckon yourself in your own mind. A more literal translation of that word would be lowliness of mind. I think that's how the King James translates it. The lowliness of mind. And especially a lowliness of mind before God. In other words, lowliness of mind or humility says to yourself in your own mind, I will let God and his word determine what is true, what is right, what is wrong, how I should act. This is the story that is portrayed in the gospel lesson today when Jesus urges them not to take the highest seat first, not to reckon themselves as some kind of noble, some kind of special person, but to take the lowest seat first and then let someone else, the master, that is God, say to you, come up higher. You let God say to you, you're valuable. You let God to say to you, you're forgiven. You let God say to you, come and join me in the feast. You don't say to yourself, yeah, I deserve all of that. Of course I'm right. Don't you know who I am? Of course I have the best solution to the problem in the church. Of course my opinion is the correct opinion. You reckon, so, you reckon yourself lowly in mind because there is one who has a mind, who we can have one mind with, Jesus Christ. Paul addresses that in Philippians 2, that we would have one mind in Christ. There is one who has a mind that we can have one mind with, who will teach us all things. And so this means being lowly enough, being humble enough to admit when you're wrong. Something I like to talk about in the history of the church's blind spots it is natural that as you grow up in a certain culture, in a certain church culture, in a certain church with certain pastors, this happens to all of us, that we have certain ways of thinking about things. And it takes a lot of humility to say to ourselves, yeah, we were wrong about that. I know when I've gone through paradigm shifts in the way that I think about something in the church, in the way that I think about something in the Bible, in the way that I think about a certain doctrine, it has been a slow and difficult process. 
It's a process that's slow and difficult because it takes this kind of humility. And so we should strive to have that kind of humility. But the good news is the more we are willing to have that kind of humility, the more we are willing to conform ourselves to nothing but God's word, the more then we are able to work with one another and build one another up and grow together in true unity. Because we're not focused on my opinion versus your opinion, we're focused on God's opinion. The next thing he says about the character of humility is gentleness. And my favorite translation for this word is gentle strength. Gentle strength. Because true biblical gentleness, it actually requires being strong. It requires strength. If you remember from last week, one of the things Paul prayed for the church for was that they would have the strength to go through the sufferings that they are going through. That they would have the strength. But what is the strength for? What is the strength and courage that the Christian has for? It's not for tearing things down. It's not for defeating people. It's not for being able to win an argument. The strength is so that you can suffer through the things of the devil, the world, and your sinful nature. But true strength is also gentleness. True strength is being able to reserve your strength when you need to. It's being able to hold back, knowing that you have the strength, knowing that you have the courage, but being able to hold back. I happen to be friends with a number of people who like to fight for fun and in competition, who like to beat each other up. And they will be the first ones to tell you that it is good to be able to fight, It's good to have that ability to defend yourself in an emergency situation, but there's only one kind of fight you can't lose, and that is the fight that you walk away from. That's the fight that you reserve your strength from. You might be able to fight. You might be able to beat someone up. You might be able to win an argument, but Christian gentleness is holding back. Christian gentleness is recognizing that to build up a fellow Christian, you don't just try and win the argument with them. To build up a fellow Christian, you don't use your strength against them. You use your strength in reserve to work with them. You hold back. You use your strength to fight against the devil, absolutely. But when it comes to fellow Christians, you are gentle. You hold back. That's Christian gentleness. That's why it's gentle strength. The ability to de-escalate, not to escalate. And that's the best defense against temptation whenever you're dealing with someone you want unity with. And finally, patience. Humility, gentleness, bearing with one another in patience. And you know what patience is. Patience means working with one another, taking the time to do so. It means that you can't expect a newer convert who is very eager to have the same kinds of church wisdom as someone who's older and has been a lifelong member. It also means that if you're an older lifelong member, you can't expect the eager newer church member to move as slowly as you may want them to. And the newer church member can't expect the older, wiser church member to move as quickly as they might want to. 
Patience means giving the leadership. It means giving the pastor time and space to deal with difficult situations. Patient means not going and gossiping about something that you have not yet sought clarification for. Patient means, as Paul so elegantly summarizes here, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. Yes, it's a difficult task. It takes that reserved, gentle strength. But to bear with one another, just to be patient, just give it some time. So that's the character of unity. Humility, gentleness, and patience. And now the source of unity. Paul moves on to describe, now, where do we get this all from? The source of unity. It is the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. John promised in John chapter 14 that the Spirit would teach us all things and bring to remembrance all that he said. Those who have the Spirit are united by the teachings of Jesus. And right after Jesus said that, he said this, Peace, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. By belonging to Jesus, through having the Spirit, by having faith in Jesus, you have the truth. You have the truth of everything that he taught, and you have the truth of the peace, the peace that surpasses human understanding, the peace that he won for us on the cross and in his resurrection. You have a peace that the world cannot give. And that is why, as Paul goes on here, he says one. There's only one kind of unity like that, only one kind of peace like that, only one Lord like that who can give such amazing gifts. One, 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 one. One Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, one Spirit. There's only one. This is what we mean in the Nicene Creed when we're going to confess in just a moment. I believe in the one holy Christian and apostolic church. And I believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. The original word for Christian in the creed there, which we changed sometime in the last 50 years, was Catholic. Not to be confused with the Roman Catholic Church. That's why we changed the word to Christian. But the word Catholic means universal. It means that throughout space, throughout all the nations, throughout the world, and throughout all of history, throughout time, there has only been one true Christianity, one true faith. And that is the faith to which you belong. That is the faith, the invisible church. We have the local instantiation of the visible church on earth, but the invisible church is the church to which you truly belong, you and all who have saving faith. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And if that's true, if it's true that you belong to a faith not just of beautiful Savior and olive branch, not just of people who come and sit in brown chairs on Sunday morning, but a faith that expands throughout time and history, throughout space and all the nations, if you belong to a faith like that, then how can you not be united? 
How can you not want to build each other up if you belong to something so much bigger than yourself? And that is a comfort to you. It is a comfort to you to be a member of a church, not just 75 members or so, whoever's on the rolls at the church at a given time, but a church of millions. A church of everyone who has ever confessed saving faith in Jesus Christ. And your life as a gospel Christian, your walk with God as a gospel Christian begins with that fact. That you are baptized into Christ. And not just baptized into Christ, but then baptized into his invisible church. And you are given these gifts of humility and gentleness and patience so that you can live in that Christian church. And that should affect every part of your walk. If you are a member of something so much bigger, so much greater than yourself, that should affect, as Paul will show, how you live with your family. That should affect how you live in your Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 life. That should affect how you live as a citizen in this city, in this state, in this country. It should affect everything because you are, at the end of the day, a gospel Christian. You are a member of the most unified and universal faith ever to exist and that ever will exist. And so today, I, like Paul, want to remind you of what you belong to. I want you to remind you that you belong to that which is bigger than you, to that which you can be truly unified with so many saints and martyrs and all the company of heaven, that you belong to that which lives through humility and gentleness and patience. And so I, like Paul, urge you today, walk that way. Walk with one another in unity. Walk in a manner worthy to the calling of which you've been called. To him be all the honor and praise, now and forever. Amen.